So as I said at the start of the service, we are in a series that we are calling The Four Witnesses. Now this series is one in which we are looking at the life of Jesus through the eyes of the four gospel writers. And the reason why is because each one of them helps us to have a fuller perspective of who Jesus is, why he matters, and what it means to follow him. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the second of those gospel writers, a man by the name of Mark. But I think it's only right that before we dive into our message for this morning, we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message that he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray together with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that this morning you have indeed gathered us together in this place, that we might come to know you. That as we spend time looking at your life through the eyes of Mark, Lord, you would help us to see us as king. And so, Lord, we pray that if there's anything that would keep us from hearing your message, Lord, that you would remove those barriers, that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive the message that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I want to introduce you uh, to the author of this gospel a little bit. He is uh, known as Mark, also known in uh, the Bible as John Mark. And a couple things that we know about Mark um, is that Mark was actually a traveling companion and fellow missionary with the Apostle Paul, but he was also a student of the Apostle Peter. Mark wrote the earliest gospel that we have. His gospel predates all of the others. And what we know is that what he had done is he had taken the recollections of of Peter, basically Peter's stories about following Jesus and what it meant to be a disciple, and he organized them into the account that we have today. And so what we have when we're reading Mark is not just Mark's words, but Peter's words as well. A man who himself was not only one of the twelve, but a part of Jesus' innermost circle. A a man who had spent a lot of one-on-one time with Jesus, who had a chance from the very beginning to observe his life and his ministry. And the picture that Mark paints for us of Jesus is a truly fascinating one because his gospel begins with the following words. He says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. Now in just this opening line, Mark is already giving us a clue as to what he wants us to understand about who Jesus is. And really it's found in these two words. We translate them as three words in English. They're really two words. The first word is what we translate good news. The second is the word we translate Messiah. Now here's why these are so important. That word good news or euangelion in the Greek was also uh, the word besorah in the Hebrew. And what this was was not just good news in general, like you're picking up a newspaper and looking at the front page and find the story is nice. No, this word is actually a royal word. It's a word of a royal announcement. This kind of word, this kind of good news would be proclaimed throughout a kingdom when a new king had ascended to the throne, or when a king had been born, or when a king had won some sort of great victory or battle, he would send out his good news, his gospel, to the very ends of his empire so that people might rejoice. And likewise, this second word, the word Messiah, is a Hebrew word. It means anointed one. 
And it's a word that actually was used in reference to Israel's kings. So that when David was anointed as king and ascended to the throne, he was referred to as God's anointed or his anointed one. You see, when we take both of these words together, what Mark wants us to understand is that Jesus is a king who is coming to announce a new kingdom. Jesus is a king who's coming to announce a new kingdom. And this is part of the reason why we refer to Mark as the rebel. Because in a world of alternative kingdoms and bad rulers, Jesus comes to inaugurate a better kingdom. That's what Mark wants us to understand. He wants us to read the rest of the gospel in light of these two ideas, in light of this idea that Jesus is a king who's come to inaugurate a better kingdom. And we actually see this emphasized even further as we get further into Mark chapter 1, because after announcing this, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, Jesus is then preceded by a royal herald, and that's John the Baptist. We read of the, this passage from Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, John's job, his calling, was to prepare the people to receive their king. Just as messengers were often sent ahead of kings when they were marching through villages and towns in their kingdom and tells them to get the roads ready, to sweep them clean, to level out the rough places so that the king might ride through. So John is going ahead of Jesus to make smooth hearts and minds that are prepared to receive him. That's why he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance is a word that simply means to turn. I want you to turn to your king. I want your hearts and your minds to be ready to receive him. And if that doesn't kind of make the case that Mark wants us to understand that Jesus is a king coming to announce a kingdom, Jesus himself announces this when he first shows up. That after being baptized and after uh, combating temptation in the desert, he returns from the wilderness saying, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. You see, if last week when we looked at Matthew, what we see is that Jesus is the one who fulfills all of God's promises. In Mark, what Mark wants us to understand is that Jesus is the king that we've always been looking for. And when Jesus says that we are to repent and believe the good news, what he's really calling us to is a new kind of allegiance. You guys remember when you were kids, right? You know, being in elementary school, what would we start every day off with? Pledge of Allegiance, right? What Jesus is basically saying right here is when he says, repent and believe the good news, he's saying the kingdom is coming. Where is your allegiance? Will you repent and believe the good news? Will you turn to this new announcement of a new kingdom being led by a better king? That's the question that then runs throughout the rest of Mark's gospel. And, and really, that's where the, the question that I think Mark presents to us as modern readers is, where does your allegiance lie? Because it is possible, it is possible to proclaim that Jesus is the anointed one and still not truly give him your allegiance in your heart. 
And the way that we see this painted right in the middle of Mark's gospel is in a pivotal encounter that's actually the hinge point in the entire book. It's an encounter between Jesus and the apostle Peter in Mark chapter 8. 16 chapters in Mark. Mark chapter 8, right smack dab in the middle of his gospel, Mark is saying this is the pivotal moment where Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say I am? And they give him all these answers, you know, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. And then he asks them, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter responds, you are the Messiah. Peter says, you're the king. You're the anointed one that we've always been looking for. But then what we see is that Peter has a very different understanding of what kings and kingdoms are all about. That on the one hand, while Peter proclaims that Jesus is king, in his heart he has a different kingdom in mind. Because Jesus, after, saying, uh, after Peter says this, begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this to them. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You see, Peter said, wait, 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 yeah, you're the Messiah, but that's not how kingdoms work, okay? You need to understand kingdoms are about power. Kingdoms are about authority. Kingdoms are about conquest. You see, Peter and the other disciples had a very clear idea of what kind of kingdom they wanted to be a part of. It was a kingdom in which the anointed one would defeat their enemies, specifically the empire of Rome which ruled the, the known world at the time, of which the people of Israel were basically slaves, a subject people. And furthermore, we find later on that the disciples are actually vying for each other. They, they actually come up to Jesus and they say, hey, when you come into your kingdom, can, can like one of us sit at your right hand and the other sit at your left hand in authority and in power? And the whole time Jesus is like, no, because that's not what my kingdom is about. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to turn and look at Peter and say, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What is Jesus saying? He's saying it is possible to proclaim him as king with your mouth and yet serve another kingdom in your heart. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, where do our allegiances really lie? How do we know that we've actually given our allegiance to Jesus and not to some other false kingdom? And the answer, I think, is found in when we look at the, the, the reactions of the disciples because every time Jesus tells them that he's going to suffer and die and lay down his life, they respond with either anger or fear. Peter, Peter straight up rebukes Jesus in anger. Later on, the disciples become afraid as Jesus tells them about what he has to face. And I think that's important for us because we have to ask ourselves, what causes us anger and fear when it's threatened? And I think oftentimes, what causes us to experience anger and fear is when we feel like we're losing control. When we feel like we're losing control. We experience anger and fear when we feel like the control that we think we have is now slipping away. There are many different examples of this, but let me give two uh, ones that I think are particularly pertinent to our culture and our society today. And that has to do with uh, what's going on in politics and what's been going on with the pandemic. You see, we as Americans, we don't do well with this whole idea of relinquishing control. 
We saw it in the whole thing with like masks and social distancing, right? Some people are just like, who's the government to tell me I can't leave my house? Who are they to tell me that I have to put stuff on my face? Who are they to tell me that I can't go to my favorite restaurant so that I can't do this, that, or the other thing? We as human beings, specifically as Americans, we have a hard time with giving up control. Even when we're being told by people who are medical experts, this will help save your life and the lives of others, we don't care. Why? Because this is my life. And I'm not going to do things that are uncomfortable for me or that are going to impinge upon my freedoms. Or think about our political discourse right now. What is the obsession in all the news? Who's in control of the Senate? Who's in control of the House? Who's in control of the White House? Who's in control of the Supreme Court? Who's in control? Who's in control? Who's in control? Who's in control? Why do we do that? Why do we have such anger and fear? I think it's honestly because, though we confess Jesus with our lips, we're really looking to other kingdoms to deliver us, to provide us with some semblance of control. And the question that I think we have to ask ourselves as Christians is are we more comfortable with with people who share our politics than with people who share our faith? Are we more comfortable with people who share our politics than with people who share our faith? You know, in 2018, Lifeway Research, a Christian research organization, well, first, in 2006, Robert Putnam embarked on the greatest survey of, uh, of basically the Christian church in America. It was this massive undertaking, this huge monumental uh, study of churches, and he published those results in this massive book called American Grace. And this is what he found. He said, people sort themselves, whether consciously or not, into congregations with politically like-minded members through a self-reinforcing process. In fact, he found that people were more likely to switch churches, not because of the theological position of their pastors, but because of the perceived political persuasion of their pastors. Note the word perceived. If you so much as got a whiff that your pastor might be voting for the other party, you were out of there. Never mind his position on things like sacraments and predestination and baptism and all that other stuff. And lest we think that those statistics are out of date, LifeWay Research in 2018 did a similar study. This is what they found. 46% of regular churchgoers prefer to attend a church where people share their political views. And that number actually goes up to 57% when you remove churchgoers over the age of 50. What that shows is that the younger the church gets, the more politicized it's becoming. See, in these moments, I think we have to ask ourselves the question that Mark is asking. The question that Jesus confronted Peter with, where is your allegiance? And the question is, are we trying to hold on to control of something, whether it's through our politics or through our jobs or through our prestige and the respect that we get or our economic situation? What are we trying to hold on to control of? Because one of the things that Jesus says, the way he says you know that your allegiance is in the right place, is this. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange 
for their soul. Jesus says, the way you know your allegiance is in the right place is as if your life is cross-shaped. He says, allegiance in my kingdom isn't about maintaining control and power for ourselves. It's about giving it up on behalf of others. It's about being willing to lay down our lives. It's about having a posture that says what matters most is that my life looks more like his. That rather than defending my power, rather than defending my control, I willingly pour out everything that I have for the benefit of somebody else. He says, you have to take up your cross and follow me. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is my life cross-shaped? Does it indeed look more like Jesus's? So that when, you know, a pandemic hits and we're being told to put masks on our face, we're not freaking out about how that's going to, like, ruin our mood at church. We start to ask the question, well, if that's going to save my neighbor's life and potentially protect the people around me, why wouldn't I wear it? Besides, you look like ninjas anyways. That's super cool. Yes, that was a joke. Let's have a little bit of levity, all right? You know, I mean, seriously, like, this is how we start to evaluate things. What does it mean for me to take what I have and give it up for the benefit of somebody else? To give up the the resources that I have so that someone who has less might be provided for. To give up a little bit of my freedoms and my rights so that I might defend and serve my neighbor. How might I lay down my life for the sake of this this kingdom coming in its fullness, in its beauty, in its glory, so that other people can experience it? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. That's the question that Jesus is constantly presenting his disciples with throughout Mark's gospel. Which is why the way that Mark's gospel is entirely structured is that everything leading up to chapter 8 is Jesus showing his power. But how does he show his power? By healing the sick, by raising the dead, by casting out demons, by welcoming in the outcasts, Jesus is constantly pouring out and pouring out. And then the second half of Mark's gospel, do you know what it is? Him pouring out to the point that he dies. Everything from chapter 8 on is his journey to Jerusalem. His growing conflict with those who have power and don't want to give it up. With those who have authority and aren't willing to sacrifice it for the benefit of their neighbors. And ultimately, finally, laying down his life on a cross that we might live. That's the very structure of Mark's gospel. He's saying this is what it means to be a part of this kingdom, is to have a life that's cross-shaped. Are our lives cross-shaped? Do we care more about the benefit of our neighbors than we do ourselves? Are we willing to pour out the way Jesus poured out for us? That's the question. The question is, how do we become those kinds of people? Because if I were simply to leave you with that, be like, just go, take up your cross, follow Jesus. We wouldn't make it five feet out that door before we'd start getting annoyed that some other people are standing in front of the way out to my car. Right? Because in our hearts, we're always bent toward ourselves. We're always trying to cling to some sort of control. And it's because we're afraid. Because we live in a world where people who say that they've got the solutions and the answers don't deliver. We live in a world of failed kingdoms and bad kings. And so the question is, how do we become people who can truly lay down our lives the way Jesus did? And the answer is, it's only when you behold the true king. It's only when you behold the true king. 
You notice that in the final chapters of Mark's gospel, everything that he says about the crucifixion points to the fact that this is Jesus' enthronement. It says that he was wrapped in a scarlet robe. He was crowned with thorns. That a notice was written above his head. This is the king of the Jews. The depiction of Jesus on the cross is a depiction of Jesus finally showing us what it means to truly be king. And one of the things that is truly most astounding, truly most beautiful in this entire gospel, is that the first person to not just declare Jesus as king, but to declare that Jesus is the son of God, is a Roman centurion. That throughout Mark's gospel, there's all these conflicting ideas about kings and kingdoms, but it's here in this final moment that we read the following. It says, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. I think it's a beautiful thing that Mark zeroes in on this one person. This Roman soldier who had all the power and the authority, who had all the control, who was himself an agent of the most powerful empire on the face of the planet at that time, suddenly when he sees Jesus laying down his life, says, that is the Son of God. Why? Because he recognized that that's the only king worth following. Because he saw the lengths that this king was willing to go for his people. That he was willing to pour out everything that they might live. That he was willing to give up his very life so that his people might be forgiven and welcomed in. And the centurion in that moment says, that is a king worth following. The only way we become cross-shaped people is when we behold our king on a cross. The one who is willing to go even to death for us so that in those moments when we're tempted to be overwhelmed by anger and fear, when we're tempted to grasp for what little control we have, we can look to him and realize there is nothing that this life will throw at us that our king isn't willing to march with us through. That because he was willing to go to death and a cross for us, we know that there is no darkness, no uncertainty where he will not walk with us through it. More than that, what we proclaim as Easter people is that our king is risen again. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. And because of that, we know that he alone has all authority and control and power. And because of that, because of both his love and his power, we can lay our crowns at his feet and hail him as Lord. When we see our king, when we see the depth of his love, it moves us to a place of worship. It moves us to a place of true hope. It moves us to a place of a different kind of allegiance because we see the one who is willing to pay everything to welcome us in. A better king, a better kingdom who invites us as his people to walk with him. And it's with that in mind, I want to close in prayer. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that in a world of failed kingdoms and bad kings, you come as the king who lays down your life for your people. 
And Lord, we confess there are so many times in which we try to look for control in other kinds of kingdoms, but you come and you set us free. You forgive us our sins. You die in our place. You rise again to glory and you say, because I have all authority in heaven and on earth, I forgive you. I welcome you in. I go with you. And Lord, we pray that that would give us a peace and a hope that truly surpasses all understanding. That we, in our words and deeds, as we lay down our lives for our neighbors, might show them how you are the only king truly worth following. For in your kingdom and your kingdom alone is light, life, and forgiveness. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.